Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. Twice in one week, Nora. That's pretty good, huh? Yeah, not bad. So for those of you who don't know, we hosted another Twitter space last Friday. And thank you to all of you who showed up and participated. We were talking mostly about the Emergencies Act and how to think about what has happened uh, in the last little bit as well as having some difficult conversations because, of course, we're not all on the same page with respect to that and what should have happened and how to imagine what could have happened instead of what did happen with the use of the Emergencies Act and policing um, against the convoy. And I think that it was a really useful discussion. And I really appreciate all of you who showed up. Yes, I totally agree. And it was also uh, odd because the Emergencies Act had already been, I mean, announced to be repealed, although I haven't even really seen if that has officially happened or what the mechanism is for having that happen. So I guess some research on my behalf is necessary. But we were also in the shadow of marching towards war. And here we are a couple of days later, and uh, there's a lot to talk about related to that. But when we have these competing issues that all seem really huge and difficult, I really appreciate that people were able to keep that headspace within the Emergencies Act. And even Sandy, you were pulling me back in as I was trying to get out. Um, and so I really, I thought that was, that was really helpful um, because it is not going away, even though the media has just done like a whiplash level pivot away from the convoy and towards uh, what's happening in Ukraine. This is not an issue that's going away anytime soon, uh, even if the only coverage you're going to hear about it are related to the court proceedings of the leadership. Yeah. And of course, there is now a freedom convoy that's heading to Washington, D.C. And so, yeah, so um, we'll see what comes of that as we know all of these things are related. Um, but yeah, I think today, today is going to be tough because for those of you who did not join the spaces conversation, of course, I think we should have a a small post post mortem on what happened with the emergencies act, but we also definitely want to talk to you all about Ukraine. So bear with us. It's going to be quite a conversation this week Mm -hmm. before we get there. I am sure we have some people to thank. We have some people to thank. And actually, just before I give their names, I will put in the show notes of this episode a link to the spaces so that you can listen to it when you ever have some spare time this week. Um, I know that people would probably appreciate to hear back that conversation. Yeah, some of you actually requested putting it in as a as an episode. And unfortunately, Twitter doesn't really let us download the audio. It's kind of it's kind of annoying. So we can't put them through as an episode, but a link will be provided. So there you go. Totally. And great, great suggestion to do that, because I, I really thought that that conversation was was quite, uh, quite, quite good. <laughs> it's quite worth listening to. And so this week, uh, we have to say thank you so much to Carmela, Amy, Matthew, Sherry, Cam, Neil, Alicia, Allison, Don, Caitlin, Kevin, Sophie and Pam. Wow. So much support. Thank you uh, to, to, to the folks I just named. Thank you so, so much. Thanks to people that have been uh, donors for a long time. And thanks to everybody who doesn't donate, but shares the podcast, engages with what we say, gives us your feedback, criticizes, sends love, all of it. Thank you so much. We love you. Yes, we love you all. 
Nora, as I said on the spaces, as I said on Twitter, I was so frustrated by the use of the Emergencies Act. I was very, very angry about the vote. So we need to do a brief postmortem on the use of the Emergencies Act. Nora, as I said on Twitter, as I said in the spaces, I was so, so, so angry about the implementation of this in addition to the vote that happened just one week ago on Monday night, late Monday night, where the Liberal Party, supported by the NDP, affirmed uh, the use of the Emergencies Act, and there was a press conference earlier in the day where journalists were asking the Prime Minister, like, when are you going to stop using this thing? The protesters are now gone. Why is this still in place? Why are you having a vote to uh, affirm and potentially extend its use? And can we expect that this is going to last longer than now? Like, are you going to have this in place for months? And the rhetoric was, yeah, the people are gone, the protesters are gone, but the emergency is not over. And we are looking into using it for months. And uh, yes, we're going to have this vote tonight and we're going to continue to use it. And uh, in a stunning about face, turns out that emergency only lasted for about 24 hours uh, because it was then <laughs> announced to be repealed on the Wednesday what in the fuck? I was also quite surprised because there didn't seem to be a clear understanding on the left that this was potentially quite dangerous for our movements in general and was represented a massive government overreach. And uh, that was uh, a bit surprising to me. And I think that uh, what we did in the spaces, which you folks can take a look and listen to and what we'll do right now with a bit of this postmortem, is to explain uh, why uh, this was such a bad, bad um, use of government power. One of the things that I find the most fascinating about what just happened is that they, you know, in the Emergencies Act, they are able to invoke it. They are able to get the powers to operate under it. And then they have to go to Parliament to be confirming the use of the Emergencies Act. And so what we saw was the the action, which was to clear out Ottawa, because, of course, the bridges um, and border crossings were already cleared by the time they invoked the Emergencies Act. They were able to take that action before there was any vote in Parliament. And so if that vote had failed, there would have been literally no change to like the on the ground action that they took. Which is so fascinating because right. the Emergencies Act is being touted as like this kinder, gentler version of the of the War Measures Act. And, and it is. There's more oversight to it. Um, but like, what the fuck? <laughs> if, if they can just swing it around whenever they, they want um, and, and not really be worried about a parliamentary vote. I mean, of course, there's all this question about um, whether or not there would have been an election had the vote failed. You can imagine with a government, uh, like a majority government situation, that's very concerning to me <laughs> that there that there's so much time between invoking the act unilaterally acting and then having it confirmed by parliament. And then if it fails by parliament, then I, I don't know what. I mean, then they've already acted. So that's one thing that for the next number of years, I'm going to try and keep in mind and watch how this this unrolls. But it certainly just looked like a power move from Trudeau. And we've been saying this on the podcast. And so I hope listeners are really like understanding what we mean when we say that. And um 
in downtown Ottawa, because I was there uh, the day that the act that he announced the act was revoked, there were still checkpoints. There were still checkpoints. There were still police uh, with their with like hanging out on corners and still streets closed. Meanwhile, the convoy people are all like in a farm or a couple of different farms outside of the city of Ottawa, all of the bank accounts that were frozen. Oh, actually, I'll pause here. Last week, I said 75,000 bank accounts. That was written somewhere. <laughs> and it was and it was a credible news source. Um, and because I used the, the number for something, a lot of people were in touch with me asking what my source was for that. And then I was like, oh, my God, I don't know. So wrong, very wrong. Uh, ended up being up over 200 accounts that were frozen. But everything's been unfrozen. So it's like so all the convoy people did what they did. They lost access to their assets for like a couple of hours, right? Was it two days or three days? And then everything's back to normal and they're all just like fucking strategizing somewhere on farms outside of Ottawa. Like even under the logic of using the Emergencies Act to crush this movement, they didn't do that. So I'm left with like a whole bunch of questions, a whole bunch of dissatisfaction. And I uh, and my opinion hasn't changed. My opinion has solidified actually watching how the liberals have gone of gone forward in the last couple of days. Yeah, and I think it's important to note what the purpose of the Emergencies Act is. It's like the the Emergencies Act is supposed to be put in place when there is a national emergency that's an urgent, and I'm reading directly from the law now, which is an urgent and critical situation of a temporary nature that seriously endangers the lives, health, or safety of Canadians. Um, and it exceeds the capacity or authority of a province to deal with it or seriously threatens the ability of the government of Canada to preserve the sovereignty, security, and territorial integrity of Canada, and that it cannot be dealt with under any other law in Canada. And as many people have said in a lot of analysis, there is nothing that the Emergencies Act provided that the current laws of the land <laughs> wouldn't have allowed the powers that be to, to deal with what was happening um, given regular policing powers. What's really important to know, I think, is that quietly, kind of under the radar, something that hasn't really been discussed a lot in the news, is that, of course, during all of this, Ontario also uh, implemented emergency measures that they have not removed from police. So th this state of emergency was lifted in Ontario, but uh, Doug Ford announced that emergency tools provided to law enforcement would stay in place as police continue to address ongoing activity on the ground. I'm not even sure what allows them to do that outside of an emergency, provide the police additional powers, uh, but that is really concerning. The other thing is that Gosh, I'm just so frustrated that there isn't a political party on the left that was able to articulate why this was such a bad idea and why this is a huge problem with respect to civil liberties. Like we have this weird situation where, you know, the liberals who are being extreme centrists, I love that term, Nora, I'm going to use it forever, <laughs> extremist centrists in implementing the Emergencies Act to try to, to come up with a quick fix for something that does not have a quick fix. Um, we have the Conservative Party rightfully saying <laughs> that that is an overreach. The Bloc Québécois saying, not in Quebec, fuck you guys. And the NDP supporting the Liberals saying like, yeah, we never should have got here. The Liberals um, 
really messed up in allowing something like this to happen. But this is the only way forward right now, which is stunning. And then we have the Green Party who was split. And I do think that it's important just to note that MP Mike Morris, uh, who is of the Green Party, wrote a really um, thoughtful uh, explanation as to why he was voting against the Emergencies Act where Elizabeth may vote in favor. They just had an open vote. Imagine that, you know, the NDP probably should have done that, um, where he explained that this was an overreach and why uh, as in a position that was from the left. And uh, it is stunning to me that we just didn't have more, more politicians who were elected do that. I think that we've covered the, the, the tour on the Emergencies Act um, and so I hope that people are I hope that people are with us. I know that in our spaces there was a discussion about how some people in Ottawa were feeling torn over the fact that the Emergencies Act did get action. And so if you're listening from out Ottawa and you're feeling that and you're feeling torn because you agree with what we're saying, but you also feel like relief, the fact that it finished, uh, you know, we can hold different competing ideas in our heads at once. You shouldn't feel torn about that. Um, and I think that uh, the fact that it was used to get action was a PR tool, right? And so, like, good for, for it's good that you got you got your city back. That's that's positive, um, but it doesn't actually mean that you need to support it and to say that the liberals did something good because they fucked up. They were nowhere for the for the three weeks of the convoy. The, the provincial government fucked up. They were nowhere for three weeks of the convoy. And I hope to God that you folks can figure it a way to get rid of Jim Watson before the end of his term. It would be cathartic. It would be fun to organize around. And that piece of shit needs to have his fucking ass handed to him. And so please, 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 please work to get rid of Jim Watson. (laughs) Yes. And um, just one final note, Uh, despite the relief that you may feel, I just want people to remember that the reason why this has happened and why so many people were um, taken by the convoy and uh, joined in with what they were saying is in part because of government failure to take care of people during the pandemic and uh, in part because there was nowhere else to put that frustration. It represented, as we've said before, a massive organizing opportunity to the right and to uh, white supremacist organizers in this country. And uh, because of the use of uh, police to kind of just wipe everybody away, um, something that allows some of us to feel relief, um, that may radicalize people more. There is no quick fix to uh, the failure of government uh, in the in the last couple of years, um, this isn't going to just go away. It is going to rear its head again. I already see people organizing to try to get more people of color to be in f- a favor of what's happening um, with the organizers of the convoy to get more and more people to see um, see it from that perspective. And I'm just really nervous about that. I think that often, I mean, I've said this before on this podcast and elsewhere, often when we are relying on police, it's because it's a Band-Aid solution to something that requires a much longer and harder fix. And that's what's happened here. And to, to, to give 
the liberals and Justin Trudeau what they want from this, which is the appearance that they did something when actually the truth is that they failed monumentally. We just need to be um, making sure that we understand that, understand that analysis and understand that this isn't a fix for anything. It's just it's a quick Band-Aid solution um, that has a lot of consequences that are coming down the line. Well, from the Canadian population and Canadian journalists uh, discovering that even the New York Times can get certain things about Canada incorrect in their foreign reporting to believing everything, <laughs> believing every single Western thing that's coming out of uh, Ukraine right now. I cannot believe the, the shift in four days or five days between, holy shit, no one in the world is covering Canada right to here is what is happening in Ukraine. And I want to start there because, <laughs> I mean, it is very confusing to witness a, an international conflict um, in this moment where international socialist organizations are in massive decline and not be able to know who to trust. We experienced that with Syria and not really understanding what the fuck was going on there and who was right and who was wrong. I mean, obviously, the the, the West's line was ba Bashir al-Assad was like a murderous Hitler-like figure. Um, you know, if you think a little bit about those kinds of like lines, you imagine, oh, it's probably more complicated and nuanced than that. And so here we are again uh, with um, a, a, a war that is already very deadly, that is absolutely not necessary, that is fucked, that Russia is trying to assert its uh, power over Ukraine and Ukraine is defending itself from Russian incursion. That's what is happening. Where things get a lot more difficult, I think, is for people who um, are trying to make sense of what the hell is going on, seeing just nonstop bombarding in their social media feeds of messages that consolidate the idea that we actually not only are on Ukraine's side, and that's an easy side to be on when you're looking at a, a, a nation invading and murdering people um, of, of another nation, but that instead we also have to get behind a war effort because this is the only way that Russia will be stopped, that Canadians need to be actively cheering for war uh, with Russia um, and that Ukraine will, will, will win, will, will defeat the Russians. And that is not a helpful frame, I don't think. I don't think that that's how we should be seeing that in Canada. And it's hard for me to untie, like, what we're seeing from what we know can, the Canadian government's been doing for fucking years now, which is priming us for this moment to make sure that when we hit the ground running, it is fully, yes, send lethal weapons to Russia. Send, I mean, there's even comments online. Again, who knows if it's real, but, but people saying that there's Canadians looking to sign up to fight uh, in Ukraine against, against Russia. And all of this creates this cacophony of, of information that is very, very, very hard to sort through. And so in this episode, we're going to try and help you do that. And I hope we'll calm uh, people's like nerves I know there's a lot of questions. Is this World War III? Are we all going to be annihilated because it's it's two nuclear powers? Um, I think there's a lot of reason to be very concerned, obviously. There's a lot of reason to be horrified, of course, uh, with what's going on. But we also need perspective on this and reminders of what gets rid of war. Uh, the answer is fucking never more war. And before we get into the conversation, I do want to say that I have seen um, a lot of the critique around, like, why do we care about 
this war more than we care about other wars. And some of you might be thinking that right now, like Sandy and Nora, um, you know, there are other wars that are happening around the world. And like, don't you care about those people as well? And why are you talking about this more than others? And I think that that is a, a, a useful critique in that Yes, clearly, uh, there, we think about different wars differently. But I do think that there is, there is a reason why this particular war is being thought of differently. And that specific reason is that there are nuclear powers on either side. Russia being a nuclear power and then NATO and the involvement of NATO and NATO countries led by the United States um, being a nuclear power that's on the other side. Two opposing nuclear powers entering into a military operation is a worldwide catastrophe. And that is what I think makes this war different. That doesn't, you know, excuse the fact that, of course, I've seen, like many of you, some of the coverage uh, that uh, just really exposes uh, some of the reporters and the way that the news thinks about war saying things like uh, making racist comments about why these the, the particular casualties in this war are different. Um, but I do think that there's a reason why we need to think about this in a particular way. And that is not to say that the other wars that are currently being waged around the world, uh, in the Middle East, in Africa, and even conflicts that we don't label war but should be labeled war, resistances um, elsewhere around the world, uh, are, at, are as significant and as important. This one is an, an issue of, of nuclear powers on different sides, and that that is... Uh, distinct and unique with respect to to what's happening elsewhere around the world. Mm-hmm. So how do we orient ourselves without having to say, like, yes, one country should be annihilated by the other country? I think that this is the key question, because if you look at the history of relationships between Russia and Ukraine and the history of of Western influence in uh, both uh, regions after the fall of the USSR um, and how foreign capital was oriented to destroy people's lives and all of the Western kind of ways that we're so good at getting involved in other countries' shit. Um, You know, there's decades and decades of history that you can definitely read and catch up on, and I encourage you to do that. Um, And it's also probably useful, too, because it, it takes you out of seeing this nonstop kind of Uh, flashpoint news on social media to give you some appreciation of what's really happening here. And when we talk about Ukraine, you know, you can imagine like if the United States ever invaded Canada, uh, there could be a different response between Quebec and the rest of Canada. That would be an interesting um, uh, potential problem if, let's say, Quebecers allied themselves with the United States because they see themselves uh, as similar in a lot of surprising ways. I think probably English Canadians would find that out. Um, and then all of a sudden, then the United States invades the rest of Canada. And then trying to explain that to someone from the fucking outside could be very, very difficult, right? Um I'm using this not as an example to say this is what's happening in the Ukraine because it's it's different. There are Russian like 30 percent of Ukrainians are Russian speakers. Like there's a lot of overlap between the two the two countries and Russia's aggression towards Ukraine is uh, abhorrent. It's not justifiable. It's 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 very, very bad. 
Um, And so when you have a nation like Russia that's a nuclear power that has global power, and I think that this is something that has been really not mentioned very much, but, you know, they're they're a global power. They have allies around the world. They have their hands also in different political different political struggles all over the world um, up against NATO, which is the quote unquote West, right? The, 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 the allied nations that um, are capitalist democracies, unlike Russia, which is like an oligarchic capitalism, I guess. Uh, mm-hmm. How do we orient ourselves around this? Um, and so for me, it's actually really simple. It's about the people. It's about um, the, it's about looking at the, the the people who are most affected by both of these um, by both of these countries and by the uh, by the violence and of course the violence right now is disproportionate on the side of Russia so Russia's violence towards average fucking people and so that's looking at and 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 paying attention to anti-war movements in russia which are very um uh dangerous to engage in right now right if you're an authoritarian country like russia if you're challenging your government's actions bombing your neighbors uh you very well could find yourself you know in jail as well for, for for protesting that so that's a really important movement that i think people need to keep their eyes on and then also, uh, you know, seeing what's happening inside Ukraine and how many families are being ripped apart because, of course, they're conscripting young men to join the Ukrainian military and just how terrible that is, how terrible it is to see apartment blocks uh, annihilated um, and to watch the politics of international refugee flow, which is something that we've seen for many, many years and that Europe has struggled with, um, that Canada is absolutely fucking terrible at. And, you know, paying attention to, okay, so what does this mean for our refugee systems? Are they being opened faster? And then if they're being opened faster, why are they being opened faster here and not for refugees who come from Haiti or Nigeria or Afghanistan, that kind of thing? There's a lot of really important threads that as Canadians, we need to be looking at. And it doesn't mean that we have to necessarily be like, yeah, go Ukraine, kick the fuck out of Russia's ass. You're going to kill more of them than they're going to kill of you. Because, you know, no war stops because there's fucking more nations running to war. That's not how war fucking ever stops. War stops when people refuse to go to war. This refusal to run towards war and to actually say, no, 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 no. Like, if there's no soldiers fighting this, there's no war. And war is only going to lead to more people's deaths. But this is not at all the message that the Canadian government wants us to hear. They want us to say, yes, send as much money as possible, send the arms, build the ammunition factory, send soldiers. Um, That's what we want. Um, And then, of course, at the end of the day, then who's making all this money off of something like war? Because, of course, we have also just gone through two years of a pandemic global pandemic where people, the, 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 the richest piece of shit in the world, did see some, I mean, most got got richer, but did see some of their normal profits dropping because of the pandemic. And so, of course, this would be a moment where a fucking major war breaking out would actually benefit the oligarchic classes of all of these countries. Yeah, I think that uh, focusing on people and average people and what the impact is on average people is always the right frame. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention that, you know, we're seeing a lot of um, both nationalism and racism happening right now in, in, the, in Ukraine as well, as people are trying to escape 
um, the military offensive. You know, Ukraine is not a country in which there are only white people in there. And there have been so many images and, um, and narratives of people of African descent, black people trying to get out and being refused access to trains, being refused access to transportation to get out with this thought that the primary people who should be able to leave uh, should be uh, people who are, um, you know, white, who are uh, Ukrainian. And that that too is a dimension of what's happening that we need to pay attention to and understand that much like with everything else around the world, the people who are harmed, there are going to be gradations of who is harmed, why and how. We need to talk about um, this sort of fever pitch of just be supportive of Ukraine and just be supportive of a military Um, any military operations that support Ukraine, be supportive of the United States supporting Ukraine, be supportive of Canada supporting Ukraine, be supportive of Europe um, and through NATO supporting Ukraine. And I think we need to be really, really critical about that frame of reference. NATO and the countries of the West are not innocent in this. They're not innocent in this. There is a long history that Nora has pointed to of how uh, countries of the West um, have operated um, that is influencing how Putin is responding. And that is not to say that Putin is correct. Fuck Putin, fuck Russia, fuck NATO, you know, fuck it all. Like these, the way that <laughs> um, the powers that be are operating are harming everyone. And NATO and its interests in Europe and its interests in making sure that it has enough power or a particular amount of power against Russia makes Ukraine a really important site for NATO. It also, I mean, of course, Russia and the way that it wants to have power over the West makes Ukraine a place where people feel, um, people may feel nervous about Um, how the power that Russia has over uh, Ukraine. And so uh, does it make sense that Ukraine's political political class has sought uh, some sort of relationship with the West and indeed NATO? Possibly. Does it make sense that uh, NATO is attempting to move eastward Uh, I mean, possibly, does it make sense that Russia is then responding with, uh, you know, fuck you, NATO, we're going to we're going to make sure that you can't do that? Possibly. I mean, in a uh, political science kind of fucking um, uh, game theory sort of sense. Sure, that possibly makes sense. But none of it makes sense for the people who are living in any either of these countries, in any of these places, and indeed, even in um, the militaries of Europe, of the United States, of Canada, which if this escalates, you know, average people who are involved, who uh, become soldiers for whatever reason, who are going to be sent over there. Like this, the, the possibilities of this to harm people all over the world is absolutely terrible. And 
I think that the way that this is being presented to us as just support Ukraine, be against Russia, is just like such a profound success of propaganda that, I mean, I would expect that in 2022, after um, seeing how quickly and um, uh, successfully disinformation can be just streamed into our households and into um, our um, in our worlds. Uh, like I, I just want us to to those of us who are those of you who are listening to be really really critical of this sort of this is easy just support uh, this these sorts of military operations be against these sort of military operations and that is the only way to think about this right now um, because I think that it's as Nora said it's really easy but it is more complicated than that and. The, the easy way to see how it's more complicated is to just think about average people who are going to be harmed by this. Yeah. While you were talking, I was thinking about um, the way that Canadians were sold the war in Afghanistan. And there's not much popular history about it. And even if there was a ton of popular history, I mean, social media makes it so fucking hard to even like get your head straight on around certain issues that you can find yourself very disoriented very quickly. But Think about where we were in 2001. There was a rising anti-globalization movement where people around the world were, were, were confronting directly riot cops uh, in major cities and shutting down summits, fully shutting down summits that were trying to uh, create these global markets that would, you know, create a, a race to the bottom in terms of uh, wages and living conditions and uh, working conditions, which is, of course, what eventually did happen. But there was this incredible spirit of, of these protests in the late 1990s into the 2000s. And then September 11th happens, and it changes everything about how uh, the United States starts talking about foreign intervention. It doesn't change their foreign intervention. They're, they're interventionists. <laughs> but all of a sudden, they have this enemy that they were able to concoct out of what happened at, after September 11th. Um, and this is why, of course, when so many of the people who uh, perpetuated uh, the, the attacks on the World Trade Center uh, were, you know, S Saudi uh, nationals, uh, all of a sudden we're going to war in Iraq and Afghanistan as if these are fucking the same places. But so 2002 comes and Canada is very much going to war with Afghanistan and, and the entire media establishment was oriented to making sure Canadians understood that women were being oppressed and that we absolutely had to go to war with Afghanistan. The only possible option was to get rid of their government and install a new one. And, you know, here we are 20 years later, we know what the fuck happened there. It's a disaster. And also, you know, it remains a disaster, right? Like, because uh, so much of um, of humanitarian support that was set up in the intervening years of the war has left the country, it's things are even worse. They're even worse. Um, and it's completely fallen off of the radar of the world. But in that moment, to decide that you would be anti-war and to not accept the line coming from Jean Chrétien the, in the federal government that we needed to go to war against Afghanistan, uh, it, was, it wasn't easy. It was not easy because it was everywhere, that message, that this is a just war, this is to save women and children, and we need to do this. And the only way that Canadians were able to get an alternative perspective on this was thanks to the anti-war movement. 
I mean, media also was better back then. There was more journalists. There were more newspapers. There was more independence of the, of the press. And so you could have a, a, a more diverse set of left-wing opinion, right? Critical opinion was not systematically shut the fuck out of the media establishment in 2001 and 2000. Um, but things were, were certainly going in that direction, and they were worse then than they had ever been in Canada. And, of course, they would get fucking far worse. But it was the anti-war movement in this country that gave people the orientation to understand what the fuck was happening in Afghanistan and, and what Canada was like actually going to war over. Right. Are we liberating the, the country's women? Is Afghanistan a country uh, in the way that we would think of, of Canada in terms of like there's one central government and everybody buys into that central government and all we have to do is go to war in this province and that province and that'll do it. Right. No, actually, the anti-war movement made it so that people understood the conditions in Afghanistan uh, so that we we didn't actually make amalgams between what we understand and how Canada works, a, a very big country with very different regions, but, you know, at least people have this buy-in to the central government, to, to a place like Afghanistan where there isn't the same buy-in into the central government, that, you know, that, that provinces are governed differently and there's different competing interests there that that needed to be explained to a Western audience uh, because with in absence of that explanation, it was very hard to say, you know, fuck the women of Afghanistan, we shouldn't go to war. Now, the the, the way that the anti-war movement was structured at the time was you had local coalitions to stop the war in cities and towns all across Canada, and you had an overarching organization called the Canadian Peace Alliance. And, of course, there'd be lots of other organizations intervening in, in anti-war mobilization from, you know, religious groups to other social justice groups uh, and, and whatever. But it gave coherence to this. And then through uh, the, you know, a national co coordinated anti-war movement, Canadians could plug into global anti-war movements. And so everything culminated in February 15, 2003, which was the day that the world said no to war. It was the biggest anti-war mobilization in the history of the globe, and there was protests all over the world, and it was amazing. That history is gone for a lot of people. For those of us who lived it, it's not gone. Of course, we remember it. And sure, you can look it up and, and find little bits and pieces here and there for the debates and the discussions around organizing in that way. But by and large, it doesn't exist. And I think that that the lack of having that plus social media, which is just so fucking destabilizing. I mean, today I made a joke like there was the picture of of, um, you know, the president of Ukraine uh, with a defense minister. They're like side by side hugging and a picture of Putin at a very long desk, like 10 feet away from other people. And a lot of people in the West were like, yeah, look, Zelensky, he's got people around him. He's not going on alone. Yeah. Fuck you, Putin. You're all by yourself. And I look at this. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. With COVID. I mean, P Putin's Putin's he's socially distancing. <laughs> like he's right, actually. And the responses from people who are like, oh, my God, why are you conflating issues? What are you talking about? How dare you say Putin's right? It's like, fucking relax. It's a joke. I'm making a joke. OK, social media is not a place where we can't make jokes. Um, and you don't even have to like my jokes. But like, how can you even interpret this being a political opinion? But people are really, really, really wound up and looking for those political opinions. And they're looking for those op political opinions sometimes from the same people who they've been following on, on COVID information for the last two years. Right. So I think that. What we all have to figure out, and we have to figure out fucking ASAP, is how do we mobilize an anti-war 
movement in this country that allows people to get themselves offline, get themselves off of that fucking incredibly uh, busy and difficult to navigate uh, information space, and that we actually can have working class international solidarity uh, perspectives that allow us to understand the nuances that are going on here, and that can allow us to give solidarity to the people of Ukraine to be able to survive this, to be able to resist Russian aggression, and give solidarity to the Russians who are trying to stop their government's fucking actions. Like, this is the way that things happen. And the oligarchs are always afraid of average people. That's the only thing that they're actually fucking afraid of. They're not really afraid of anything else. And so how do we give our power or our solidarity, extend that to people of Ukraine and of Russia to allow them to to, to, to resist in whatever ways that they're able to resist that isn't let's go to more war because it's not going to fucking it's not going to do it and you know i just want to put a finer point on like the idea of where people are getting their news i cannot stress this enough like social media is a uh, an opportunity a site for uh propaganda and we know we are aware that uh, the Russian state can use social media very effectively to change the ideas of people. And I would be shocked and surprised if um, that some of that, uh, that expertise didn't exist in the West as well, which means you have to be really critical about what you are reading on social media and attempt to get your news from multiple sources elsewhere. You can try to get some sources, of course, from Western media, but you should also see if you are able to get um, uh, sources outside of Canada, outside of the United States. Try to see if you can get some some news sources elsewhere and compare and see where you can find uh, the threads that make sense. Be critical of the news, um, uh, you know, work on your media literacy. And of course, of course, of course, as Nora says, for so many of us who... Um, were active uh, in the early 2000s around anti-war movements. We the trust we put a lot of trust in uh, in movement organizers to help us parse through the what we were being told um, on whether it was weapons of mass destruction or um, how you know this you know these wars were just wars or that this was the time to be patriotic and nationalist and blah 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 um we need that we desperately need it and uh i'm you know i there was an appeal a few episodes ago that we made for for people who were members of the the anti-war movement back then and who are a part of anti-war organizing now like this is the time it is time to um to really uh, scale up. Um, and this is the work that needs to be done from those of us who are anti-war. And it is, yes, that is a position that you can stake out right now to be anti-war. Um, and that is, uh, I think, the only just position here. Um, and it is the position that supports um, average people everywhere. Yeah. And so as you're trying to sort through all this information and waiting for someone to call an anti-war meeting in your in your town or city, I mean, first of all, you can just call it. If you call it, it's like the bad signal. Old anti-war folks will be like, holy shit, someone's doing something and they'll show up. They should be doing it, but maybe they're too busy or maybe people are just disoriented. I don't know. But call those meetings. But also pay attention to China and to India. 
because those two countries are very, very important. And all of this talk about world war, is this the next world war? It's very located in the logic of white supremacy, of Euro supremacy, of a war in Europe means a world war. And I mean, the way that India and that China interact with this is is going to be very, very important to watch. And rather than being worried about the next world war, just pay attention to what's going on. The people who are dying now, like it doesn't matter if it gets worse in a week, they're already dead. So the, the, it's, again, that solidarity to what is happening on the ground is so, so important. And if you're worried about nuclear war, well, I mean, I think that is the thing to be worried about as well. I think that that is far more important than worrying about whether or not we're into World War III. Worrying about nuclear war is very, very important. So again, there have always been anti-nuclear activists who have always mobilized in, in the ways that they can. It's another location where people can get involved. You know, the West has nu- nuclear weapons. And if Russia starts using their nuclear weapons, there will be, again, a drive to get Western buy-in to use nuclear weapons to respond. And and and, and that will leave everyone fucking dead. So a, a really strong anti-nuclear sentiment from the from Western people, from those of us who are anti-war and who do not want to see this turn into a nuclear war is so fucking important. And it isn't the we should all hide under our desks and go through the, the drills of the 1960s. It's being vocally fucking loud and clear about denouncing uh, the use of nuclear arms. And that means every civil society organization uh, needs to be fucking doing whatever lobbying or conversations that they're having with our leadership to make sure that nuclear weapons, um, if Russia is to use them, that there is no fucking ridiculous retaliation from the West in the same in the same way. But, you know, of course, these are these are international issues and they require international solidarity. So let's start by building our own anti-war movement. 